Welcome back to Stream Again, the podcast where we try to watch everything in the streaming universe so you do not have to, unless we tell you it's good, and then you do have to. I am your host, uh, Chicagoland's number one original piece of beef, Chris Barlow, and I am joined across the internet by my co-host, our very own sous chef, Diane Nora. How you doing, Diane? I'm thrilled to be staging for you today, chef. Uh, thank you, chef. Uh, this episode, I'm excited. We are going to be talking about a show that is near and dear to both of our hearts for at least one reason, because it is set at a beef restaurant in Chicago. And if you are from the Chicagoland area, the idea of a beef place, a beef joint in Chicago is the instant workplace comedy or dramedy setup you've been waiting for your entire life. Uh, that show, of course, mm. is called The Bear. And it is airing on Hulu. It's an FX on Hulu show. And we are going to review that later this episode. I'm excited, too, because recently we've been doing a lot of big blockbuster shows, uh, Obi-Wan and Ms. Marvel. And here's a show where uh, it was not on my radar until I saw an ad on the side of a bus like three weeks ago. Yeah, this one snuck up on me, too. And um, I definitely think it's worth a watch. So excited to talk about it later. Yes, and then even later in the episode, we are going to do our second Rewind review and revisit season three of Barry. We both have many, many feelings about how that season ended, and that is coming much, much later in the episode. So if you are not ready to have season three of Barry spoiled for you, no worries. We will give you plenty of warning, but that's coming later. So first, uh, let's begin with a little bit of news, and in particular news about our favorite topic... The Netflockalypse. And, you know, we have just a a slew of little Netflix headlines to get to, inspired in part by the uh, end of season four of Stranger Things. I just finished it last night. Two episodes of television that took me three days to get through. Because, spoiler alert, and this is not much of a spoiler, so don't worry, but spoiler alert, the uh, season finale is longer than many movies. In fact, it's the length of an MCU movie. They just went full MCU Avengers flick with the finale. And interesting, w- would you say overall, without going into a full review, they they nailed the landing? Would I say they nailed the landing? I, you know, they nailed a landing. <laughs> um, did, okay. I, did I feel like the ninth episode should be two and a half hours long? No, no, I did not feel like the ninth episode should be two and a half hours long. In fact, there were multiple points in that episode where I went, this is where you end the episode, and then there's another episode with the next thing that happens. And I'm sure there is some stupid contractual reason they could not break it into more episodes, because you can pay them so much for nine episodes, no matter how long the episodes are, but as soon as you declare something the tenth episode, you have to pay people more. Um, it also, to be fair, could be the Duffer Brothers just wanting to make a movie. And, and I mm-hmm. think we'll kind of get a vibe for this in a couple of these links, because it, I, I think it is very clear at this point that uh, this was their gateway to make an 80s movie instead of they really wanted to make a TV show. And, you know, more power to them in the streaming universe. What is a movie? What is a TV show? What is two and a half hours of my life? It's whatever you say it is. Uh, And (laughs) speaking of whatever you say it is, uh, I want to start with, you know, the Netflockalypse, which many people are let's say, obsessing about or maybe blowing out of proportion. Netflix is still an incredibly successful media company. Uh, But we have a link in the show notes this week from Vox Media. It's uh, Peter Kafka and Ronnie Mola at Recode. They're like tech people. And uh, the headline of this, I just love this headline. Here's why Netflix made you wait a month to watch the rest of Stranger Things. 
And I feel like you and I, Diane, we've talked about this a bit, that obviously the strategy here is to pull it across multiple monthly billing cycles so that if you're if you're signing back up just to watch Stranger Things, you can't sign up for one month. You have to sign up for three months, basically. Right. And, uh, you know, since they have lost um, many subscribers earlier this year, they're trying to combat that with this streaming schedule. Right. And and I feel like that's what we've talked about. And we've we've wondered, you know, weekly or breaking it into two parts like this. What's going to be the what are they going to find is the ideal strategy? What I found really interesting in this article from Recode is that uh, the, the numbers are actually scarier in some ways for Netflix than I thought. And in particular, I'm just reading this straight from Kafka and Mullah, Netflix subscribers are now more likely to quit in the first month than any other streaming service. And Netflix subscribers who signed up in the last three months are more likely to quit than in the past. Uh, So the dreaded churn that uh, all these streaming services are concerned about seems to be a growing problem here for Netflix. In in particular for Netflix, that people sign up to check out something specific, they binge it, and then they bounce. That's what I read into that. Uh, And another interesting detail there that is, you know, good news for Netflix, uh, the longer someone has been subscribed to Netflix, the less likely they are to churn out. So if you've been with Netflix since it was DVDs in the mail nonstop, you probably don't even give a second thought to your Netflix bill at this point. It is your media diet. It, It is the base of the food pyramid of streaming media. But if you're new to Netflix, or maybe if you've gotten booted from a family subscription or something like that, and you have to sign up for your own for the first time, you're weighing the cost value way more deliberately, way more heavily than somebody who's been with it for a long time. And those people are not finding enough value to stick around. Right. And part of that, too, is the higher price point, possibly, for Netflix that might be turning people away, Um, especially with, you know, inflation, lots of other costs that people are balancing right now. $15 a month for Netflix might just be too much for some folks. Yeah. you As somebody who recently had to start a new Hulu trial for reasons that we do not need to get into, uh, but might have to do (laughs) with watching The Bear, uh, Hulu with ads, seven bucks a month. So I, if, if I'm just weighing volume of media, I can have two Hulus for the price of one Netflix. And even if Netflix mm-hmm. has a deep catalog, I'm probably going to look at like the combination of catalogs on, let's say, Hulu and Peacock and go, as crazy as it sounds, I think I'm going to stick with Peacock. Interesting. Yeah. And also some folks have a bundle that would include, would include their... some of these things. And Netflix right. is, is decreasingly likely to be in any kind of bundle. And uh, that is that is, you know, the dark news about Netflix right now. We had to get that out of the way. This is a segment that we do refer to as the Netflockalypse. But as we also mentioned, season four of Stranger Things just came out. And guess what? Season four of Stranger Things is a hit. Both parts one and part two, apparently. But we have the streaming numbers now for part one, which is what came out uh, earlier in the the late spring. Uh, And that, uh, Nielsen, did some streaming numbers. We've gotten some numbers from Netflix, like like we've often talked about. The streamers don't, are, are not transparent. They have no reason to be transparent in a lot of these numbers, so they kind of cherry-pick. And then Nielsen and the kind of old-school ratings machine does their best to approximate minutes viewed, essentially. And they don't have the same uh, data access they used to, but they're getting pretty good at it. And so I thought these Nielsen numbers were very interesting, because according to Nielsen, Season 4 Part 1 of Stranger Things triggered the uh, a record-breaking 
weekly number of minutes streamed for the series, Stranger Things. And to to break down what that means, they are including all four seasons in that. So this isn't just people who watched the the fourth season, part one. This is people who maybe watched the fourth season, part one, in a weekend, and then went back and rewatched season three. Or people who, the week that, you know, season four came out, started by rewatching the end of season three to get themselves caught up. Or maybe they just went, you know what, I want to watch season one again. Because the more I watch Stranger Things, the more I just want to watch season one again. Uh, at least, that's me. Uh, so this is, you know, th- there is the angle here that they have three prior seasons that people could have been watching. But for the first full week that season four part one was out, they had over 7.2 billion minutes watched. Billion with a B. Billion. I just, that's so many minutes. It is, especially when you think then that how that might be even larger when we look at the second half of the season, because the episodes are so long. So long, so long. This is also a moment where you go, wow, Netflix has no reason to discourage long episodes because the metric is increasingly shifting to minutes viewed. For, for quite a while, Netflix focused more on how many people watched the first two minutes of an episode. That was their metric for a long time. And that is a ridiculous metric that makes zero sense whatsoever. So minutes watched, I think, is an improvement. But is it a perfect metric? No, because that that just encourages people to say, well, let's make the finale two and a half hours. Because when a million people watch two and a half hours, that is, I don't know, 70 bajillion minutes. It's a lot of minutes. It's many, many minutes. Uh, The only other shows, this is uh, something interesting noted in Variety, that had um, beat the five billion minutes streamed in one week were Tiger King, which... Absolutely a product of its time. I I probably (laughs) streamed five billion minutes of Tiger King by myself that week. I was so bored. And Ozark. I was kind of surprised by that one. That one surprised me, too. And this is the universe. The universe slowly, like, ganging up behind me and saying, Chris, you have to watch Ozark. Chris, Chris, you skipped out on Ozark. Chris, no, no, no. That was a mistake. Everyone else has seen Ozark but you. People say Julia Garner is great in it. I love Julia Garner. She's really, really good. So Ozark, apparently big hit. And once again, this is one where I think Ozark benefited from the fact that they had past seasons available when the latest final season came Mm -hmm. out, so that people who were hearing that it's really good and you should watch it, binged and caught up so that they could start the new season. I also think this says something, the fact that Stranger Things is up there with these shows and even uh, ahead of these shows, it says something about our streaming patterns not ending just because uh, the pandemic is reaching a new phase in some ways. Like, no. you know, a lot of people are returning to work. Um, their lives may be, you know, less at home than they were in 2020. However, people are still streaming. <laughs> yes. I think there's an inclination right now for some people to think that streaming and in-person activities, be it the movie theater or going to the <laughs> bar or whatever, that it's a zero-sum game. That if you go back to the movies, that is two and a half hours of streaming you are not watching. But as we're going to get to in a link in just a few minutes, well, maybe 10, 15 minutes at this pace, uh, we will talk about how that may not be the case. And in fact, there's some data coming out that suggests that people are just finding more time in their day or neglecting neglecting important life responsibilities. I don't know. Just keep on streaming seems to be the answer. If you're one of those people, we salute you. 
We do. We do. Oh, I had one more piece of information from that Variety article that I found intriguing in in the same sense that I found that Ozark stat intriguing. Uh, For this week they looked at, the week that uh, Stranger Things Part 1 of Season 4 was fully available. So it came out uh, at the end of a week. This is the first full week you could watch all the episodes. Um, That week, the number three show was its competitor, Obi-Wan Kenobi which at that Mm -hmm. point only had two episodes fully out, and then a third came out that week. So the fact that Obi-Wan was even in the top three with three episodes of content versus 32 episodes of Stranger Things that were available, that that to me is actually a good notch for Obi-Wan. And then in Mm -hmm. between those, the number two show that week, in terms of minutes streamed, was The Lincoln Lawyer, which last week, uh, in our last episode when we played Renewed or Cancelled, <laughs> you thought was a cancelled show. Because it sounds like a cancelled show. It sounds like something that aired on CBS for one season, and then nobody remembered it. It does. I apologize to The Lincoln Lawyer for having assumed that it was bad and cancelled. But, um, you know, may- maybe... I think i said last week maybe i'll check it out i haven't done so no no i haven't either but yet the signs keep pointing to i might be forced to at some point if this this turns into another yellowstone i don't know i don't know i don't want to think about it (laughs) for all our talk about netflocalypse Netflix, uh, people are watching Netflix. They just might not be paying to do so. (laughs) That's true. And you know what? They also might not be paying very close attention because in some more Stranger Things news, uh, the Duffer Brothers have been on a publicity blitz for the release of Season 4, Part 2. I will never find it easy to say Season 4, Part 1 or Season 4, Part 2. I do not like this model where I have to cram all these words and numbers together, but I, I digress. Uh, they they were on um, a, a little panel, little video chat with Variety, and uh, they mentioned that they have been going back and making edits to the previous seasons of Stranger Things, a la George Lucas and the original Star Wars trilogy. And they literally referred to it as George Lucasing their pre- their previous releases, which I, I, is a terrifying phrase. I cannot believe that they would associate themselves with the man who just put a bunch of CGI bleeps and bloops into classic films on VHS in the 90s. And now those are the only versions you can get. Well, uh, fans loved it when they made... Uh... Han shoot first, Greedo shoot first. That's right. Greedo shot first. When they first, made Greedo right? shoot first. Han shot first, always. First. <laughs> Han Han first always. Uh, um, a, a very popular choice. I don't know why. This actually made me think less of George Lucas and more of Kanye West going back to edit his old songs oh. on streaming services. Um, because it made me think, who is buying the DVDs of, Stranger of Netflix Things? This shows? is what I thought was so crazy. Is they're like, well, if you want to know what we've changed, nothing was changed before they printed the DVD and Blu-ray releases. So you can watch. And I, I just, my, my jaw fell to the earth as it occurred to me. Of course, there are DVD and Blu-ray releases of Stranger Things. If you are a crazy, rabid fan of Stranger Things, and you want to experience the 4K Stranger Things experience, you will buy it on Blu-ray, because unless you have the most amazing internet connection in America, the odds of you getting that Blu-ray quality on your TV through Netflix is low. 
Yeah, I'm watching it all on a tiny laptop, too. So. <laughs> That's the thing. So I'm like, who is this for? Well, it is for somebody, but I cannot imagine that person. I If, if I met that person, I don't know. I don't know. You can write to us, podcast at streamageddon.com. Are you a collector of Netflix DVDs and Blu-rays? What's in your collection? Why do you collect this? Are you a hoarder? Or do you have a practical purpose for them? Do you use them as coasters? Or do you use them as tiny frisbees for your little dog? I want to know. So again, that's podcast at streamageddon.com. And do you think that George Lucas is similar to the Duffer Brothers? Because I think they the Duffer Brothers know. would love to think so. They would. I, would they? I'm so confused by the, the 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 involuntary comparison. It's not like the interviewer was like, ah, oh, like George Lucas. They literally are like, nah, we George lucas that. <laughs> but it's a good thing? It, uh, they, they claim. They wouldn't say what they've changed, but they did reveal... Because fans have noticed this in in season four, there's a moment in season four that um, where where it's implied that Winona Ryder's character doesn't know her own son's birthday, because in season two they established his birthday is on a, on March twenty second, um, and in season four she says something that either means that they got it wrong or that she doesn't know her own son's birthday and then no one corrects her so then it implies that nobody knows will's birthday which is extremely sad and depressing and would be an interesting choice but that that wasn't the reason that was there it was a mistake and so they said they're going to go back to the episode in season two and they're going to edit it saying quote they're going to change it from march to may because may can fit in winona's mouth which I logically Weird. understand what they're saying. Yeah, it's that's uh, ADR. They're just changing the dialogue. In May and March, your mouth moves similarly. However, don't ever use the phrase because blank can fit in Winona's mouth. Just don't <laughs> use that phrase. That's that's a good motto to live by. Just generally speaking. Um, <laughs> uh, I... I think that this is a bad choice. It's fun when you find little errors in continuity in TV shows. Yes. Fans like it. Yes. You know, I I think that the idea that the show needs to be completely perfect over four seasons, which are basically five seasons, I, I don't know that that is what people really care about. You know, they want it to be entertaining and fun. And if you are a super fan and you catch stuff like that, it's a little rush, you know? Yes, that's fun to me. But but the, yeah, the, the universal fandom around us has decided that no, no, everything must be perfect. And if we have to retcon the story to make it that way, we will. We will. I think it's kind of a bummer. I do too. But you know what's not a bummer? These other quick headlines we're going to get to. And we're going to start with Disney Plus from our friends at Deadline. The Obi-Wan finale did pretty well. Uh, 20% higher ratings than the Boba Fett finale, the Book of Boba Fett finale. And I would say, as as you know, we, we really unpacked Obi-Wan in our last episode. If you mm-hmm. did not listen, we did our first re- rewind review of the end of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And so if you re- really want to know how we feel about Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, check out the last episode. Great, great episode. Uh, we're not going to spoil any of that ending here because we did that last episode. So I'll just say, like, yeah, I think that this makes sense. 20% better than Boba Fett. I think that makes sense. I do, too. I also think that it shows the popularity of the Obi-Wan character. Like, everyone loves Obi-Wan Kenobi and Ewan McGregor's performance of Obi-Wan Kenobi, even if they may find the show was imperfect. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Uh, that did very well. The second part of this, I teased a little bit earlier, uh, I- interesting information about Doctor Strange 2, the movie uh, from the Marvel Cinematic Universe that was in movie theaters and was very, very successful in movie theaters, is now making its debut on Disney+, Plus, where it is doing very, very well, and it is still doing well in movie theaters. What? People are streaming and going to the movies. We can't get enough content. That is the answer. More content, please. More content now. Content I've already seen? Well, I will see it again. At home, in the theaters, I will see it anywhere. The bad news, the bad news to me for Disney is this means people really didn't want to see Lightyear. I, you know what? I saw the Doctor Strange movie and I would probably watch it again before I turned on Lightyear. Fair enough. Uh, you know, so we might be seeing more of Doctor Strange, I would imagine. Uh, but that is not the only scandal going on at Disney. No, no, no. There is something else where we are seeing not enough of someone. In fact, according to the crack TV staff at Polygon, uh, there's a scandal brewing because there are promo shots out for the upcoming Disney Plus revival series about the Santa Claus. I'm going to just pause there so you can all take a moment <laughs> to process what I just said. Upcoming Disney Plus revival series starring Tim Allen, reviving his character from the hit movie trilogy, The Santa Claus. Just, okay, we've, we've gotten that. Uh, what you might now be flashing back to suddenly is the most important character in The Santa Claus, Bernard the Hot Elf. I'm sorry, Bernard the Head Elf. I He's hot. Uh, so Bernard the Hot Elf is not in these promo photos for the Disney Plus series, and that is extremely alarming. Fans are concerned. We want our David Crumholtz. Where has he gone? He's essential to the Santa Claus cinematic universe. (laughs) Yes, although in researching this link, I discovered he declined a role in the Santa Claus 3 because he thought it didn't make sense for his character. So perhaps he's not essential in the Santa Claus universe, but David Crumholtz is essential in our universe. Well, fans of David Crumholtz uh, can catch him elsewhere. He's going to be on Broadway this fall in Leopoldstadt. He is going, he's on the show Numbers, uh, which was on CBS and is now streaming for free on Pluto. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he was also in 10 Things I Hate About You, uh, which is streaming on Hulu. So if you are itching for David Crumholtz, we've got you covered. Iconic. That was our public service announcement for the week. (laughs) You can still see more David Crumholtz in your life, which might help fill the hole that your heart might feel if you enjoy cable news, because uh, news from MSNBC, you'll be seeing a lot less of Rachel Maddow. Something, if you're a Rachel Maddow fan, you already know this. She announced in the spring that Mm -hmm. she was going to be stepping back. But MSNBC has finally decided what to do, or perhaps has finally, like, lifted the pillow off of their face that they've been stress screaming into for three months, and they've come up with a plan. And so, uh, according to the Washington Post, uh, Maddow, staying on Monday nights, nice mnemonic there, Maddow Mondays, uh, Tuesday through Friday... Alex Wagner will be taking over that 9 p.m. slot, and I love this in theory uh, as somebody who overdosed on Maddow uh, in the early days of the pandemic watching just far too much cable news and, uh, and at a certain point could not tolerate more MSNBC. I'm excited, actually, to have Alex Wagner in that kind of primetime slot. I really like her from uh, Showtime's The Circus, which is their kind of weekly mini-documentary series about politics in Washington. Alex Wagner is one of the EPs and co-hosts. She's also been on CBS This Morning, 
Morning, and she was an MSNBC contributor uh, like a decade ago. Uh, so she's got history there, and I, I like her attitude. I like her style. It's a little less panic-inducing than Maddow, mm-hmm. and I love you, Rachel Maddow, but panic-inducing is the tone of the show. I really like that Alex Wagner is smart. Yes. <laughs> uh, Rachel Maddow is also is very too. smart. Um, but yeah, there's, I think that she, um, offers a lot of expertise when she's interviewing people. She usually has good follow-up questions. So I think this is a good choice. Uh, I'll check it out. Yeah, it honestly, well, I have no idea how I'll check it out because I don't have cable and they won't reveal this on Peacock easily, I'm sure. But maybe it'll be in the MSNBC hub on Peacock, which is my favorite section of Peacock because it has the longest name of any section on Peacock. (laughs) I look forward to seeing Alex Wagner and the MSNBC hub on Peacock. Uh, Unfortunately, I won't know how to search for it because they have not decided on a name for Alex Wagner's show. They've just said it will not be called The Rachel Maddow Show if Rachel Maddow is not hosting it. It's historical for cable news in that I don't think another cable news uh, network has ever broken up a primetime slot like that, where two different hosts take the same slot on different nights of the week. That That is kind of a new idea. I think that they just, she is so popular, Rachel Maddow, that they oh, yeah. can't give her up completely. No, I'm <laughs> sure. They'll just never let her leave. I'm sure that negotiation was, whatever you want, Rachel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good for her. Good for them. And you know what? Good for us for making it through all of that traumatic news, people leaving, people missing. What will we do? Well, I have a little bit of good news for us to end with. Somebody who you will undoubtedly be seeing more of or or maybe more from. Uh, HBO Max has signed an overall deal with Robin Thede, creator and star of a Black Lady sketch show. I love Robin Thede. I love that she's succeeding on HBO Max. I think, great, give her all of the things on HBO, please. Such a funny woman. Yes, great choice. Funny, smart, sharp, has had many, many, many roles in her career already. I was watching a trailer for her short-lived BET uh, late-night talk show, The Rundown, and she managed oh, to... Oh, I never saw that. She In this five-second joke in a trailer, she makes a joke that connects the water in Flint with Maxine Waters and says, we got all the waters. Oh, my gosh. Oh, now I have to watch that. I know, right? I know. So great news. Love Robin Thede. Love a Black Lady Sketch Show. We'll see more of that, sadly, in the future. So what will we do in the meantime? Well, in the meantime, I think we're going to review The Bear. That's a little bit of Sufjan Stevens' Chicago, because this is a show set in Chicago. And according to a review I read, they will eventually use this, because this show seems to love a good needle drop. So I thought, why not? Good call. Yeah, I did. I noticed some Wilco in the pilot. Oh, yeah. You can't do a Chicago show without some serious Wilco. It's contractually obligated. Uh, so the show, it's called The Bear. It is on FX on Hulu, which, you know, I assume means you can watch it on FX on FX, but I don't know, this is a streaming podcast. FX on Hulu. Uh, you can stream all the episodes, full season dropped, and uh, it is, I would describe it as a 30-minute dramedy. Does that sound right? Yeah, light on jokes for a comedy. I was expecting it to be more comedic. Yeah. Um, But I think when it intends to be funny, the jokes hit. Yes, and that it, it, the the heart of the show is much more drama. It's much more family yeah. drama, emotional drama, personal trauma drama, um, personal trauma drama. 
favorite genre. Uh, but it, it is wrapped in this kind of workplace comedy uh, vibe, let's say, for lack of a better word. And so mm-hmm. we watched the pilot and the second episode, first two episodes for review. That is your spoiler alert. And uh, I, I would say what I took away from it just t- tonally is is that it it's a very fast-paced show, and the comedy often comes in the fast-paced sections. And then when it slows down, it can kind of hit you in the gut a little bit because it gets very, very serious when it slows down. It does. And I actually found the slower moments to work better for me. I agree, actually. Um, Sometimes in the chaos of the fast-paced moments, I felt like I was... Um, the show got a little shouty and I understand that professional kitchens are like that. I've worked in restaurants before. Uh, So there did seem to be a level of accuracy about what working in a professional kitchen was like, though. I'm not sure about the accuracy of it being a beef place, but we can get into the (laughs) original Chicago land. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I agree. But um, because sometimes it had like a restaurant section. Sometimes it just seemed like a sandwich shop. There were a few moments in the set between the first and the second episode where I was like, did they get a different set after the pilot? Because the restaurant looks different in episode two, but it could also be that we just didn't see much of the customer facing part of the restaurant in episode one. Right. And I think it's supposed to be based on Mr. Beef um, on Orlean Street, which uh, doesn't have that front section. So strange, strange choice, but I guess they wanted something to happen with the customers later maybe yeah. they, they, there needs to be some customer facing section of it there's also an odd moment to me in, in episode two related to that where uh sydney who is a young mm-hmm. um a new new hire she wants to be a professional chef and it, this is her like first cut in her teeth kind of gig she comes up with a business plan to revitalize the business and one of the the things she wants is a to-go business and i'm like they don't mm-hmm. have a to-go business i feel like most chicago beef joints are 80 percent to-go business it didn't make sense. I think that generally they've nailed what it's like to be in a like high-end restaurant, which part of the plot is that, um, I would say the, the center of the, the plot of is it, that, yeah. yeah, the bear himself, uh, nicknamed Bear, uh, Carmi Berzato, um, has been a top chef at, you know, some really high-end restaurants and has now come to Chicago to take over his brother's sandwich shop after his brother has died by suicide yeah. um, uh, quite recently. Um, so it's about him grieving and also about him trying to turn this shop around um, and make it into perhaps something more high-end um, or at least just more more professional yeah yeah more professional that he comes Um, in with his big big fancy restaurant ways of running a kitchen and tries to immediately force that onto this ragtag staff of chicago down and dirty cool chill street corner people you know that is the vibe like it's a bit you know i will say like they they bring in this white guy from the city essentially to tell a, Mm -hmm. a much more diverse kitchen how to run itself and that obviously has tension built right in there's the added tension then of his um cousin they call him the the they do not seem to be Mm -hmm. blood related his cousin richie who was kind of the right hand man running the shop with carmy's brother michael 
Mikey, who died. Um, and so there's tension between uh, Carmi and Richie because Richie doesn't want to run the, the sandwich shop like a fancy place. And then there's tension between Carmi and the entire staff because he's coming in here trying to transform it into something else. Though at the same time, the staff, many of them acknowledge Richie is not very responsible. No. And he seems like he can be just kind of a jerk. Um, we hear, hear him make uh, some nasty comments that are homophobic. Uh, he keeps calling Sydney the new hire, like baby and sweetheart, um, which he doesn't seem to be doing intentionally to be offensive. He's just no, he reads uh, more to than me, a little rough around the edges. Yeah, as the the classic unintentionally offensive straight white guy who just is ignorant to the nth degree about the words that are coming out of his mouth and is frustrated that people do not seem to understand his good intentions. Yeah. He also mentions that they're Italian. He says that he's Italian. He has a Polish last name. And then he makes uh, comments about Polish people. <laughs> I was like, what? which um, would not, I wouldn't recommend doing that in Chicago. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't personally. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, I was a little confused about his character. Uh, they don't seem to be in a, in a rush to over reveal these backstories, though. I, I will say the first episode, I thought I had a grip on who everyone was to everyone, and the first episode was a little clunky with exposition, trying to explain why is Carmi here, what, why is he trying to say them, make them do these things in the kitchen, and why don't they like it? Because if you don't have any experience working in like a restaurant kitchen, you also don't understand the culture clash without them being pretty explicit about the differences. Um, and so in the first episode, I was like, this is kind of clunky with exposition. I think I know how everyone relates, and I feel like you're kind of over-explaining it, maybe. And then the second episode kind of pulled the rug out for me where the the exposition was a lot better and revealed through much more i think kind of honest character moments and then in a lot of the situations they were like oh no you thought that they were this no they're not that you thought richie was like literally a blood relative no he's not which complicates things a bit and then you thought you knew everyone in carmy's family well no now he's calling his sister who seems to have her life really well put together and is trying really hard to help carmy get his life together and it begins to open up like oh, there's a lot more uh going on in these backstories and you know, pilots are hard, so getting us to that place, not easy. I, I was more impressed by the second episode, which seemed to settle into a rhythm of, like, here's what the show will feel like week to week, and here's uh, how deep these characters actually go, that we are going to really go somewhere with them. Yeah, I think there are two big ways to craft a pilot, right? Like, you can have it so that you see your protagonist uh, get put into a new situation where like, so that would have been if they'd done it where like we'd see Carmi at his restaurant job in New York or wherever fancy place he was. And then he would get the news. His brother had died, make the decision over the course of the pilot to go back to Chicago and work on the sandwich shop. Right. Yeah. This, the other way to do a pilot is to just throw the audience right into the new situation. Um, and that's what they've done here. I think pacing wise, it was a good choice. Yes, um, I think long term for the health of the season, it was smart to just kind of make us swallow the pilot and get into mm -hmm. it. Yeah, but it does make that half hour itself a little bit confusing and jarring. I, I um, truly we were 
uh, texting about uh, the the season as I was watching the pilot, and you were like, "Yeah," and then that's not very long of an episode. And I, in my brain, I was like, "This episode is like fifty five minutes long. I don't know what you're talking about. I feel like I've been watching this pilot for an hour." And in hindsight, <laughs> no, it was only thirty minutes. It just it had so much ground it wanted to cover, and it it did it kind of inelegantly um, that it just dragged. The second episode. Uh, benefited from that sacrifice though I really think and in a season that drops as a binge most people are going to give you the benefit of the doubt on the pilot I think that's something where if your pilot is a little weak or a little strained because you have to set up stuff then you want more of a binge drop or at least the first few episodes to drop so people can get a sense of what the show really is and admittedly maybe episode 3 will take a right turn and go directly back to where the pilot was in terms of structure and pacing but my suspicion is that episode two is a much more uh, uh, realistic uh, example of what the show is trying to do. Yeah, I think that's right. So in episode two, we have the health inspector come in, and that's like the big crisis of the episode. And I think that basically the way the show will proceed, as, as Chris was guessing, is that we'll see like a crisis come up at the restaurant and there'll be some uh hijinks crisis <laughs> um, and hijinks everyone loves exactly um and there'll be some comedy and also a, a lot of seeing carmy grow and heal or struggle to grow and heal as cuz in the se- right. <laughs> in the first episode you you get the feeling that he's sad and stressed out and has this kind of work until you die even if the work makes you die faster mentality like that all is really clear from the pilot it's in the second episode where we see him sort of like sleepwalk and start a fire in his kitchen and then realize that he's the one who lost his cigarettes cuz he can't keep track of them which caused them to like kind of fail their health inspection and then that he talks to his sister and tells her these things and you realize this isn't the first time this has happened and he hasn't been sleeping well and that he really needs to get help and that his sister has had some kind of problems and has gotten help and that implies that he really needs the help and that this has been going on for a while and so it's he, his character gets a lot darker in the second episode and you you begin to kind of understand that the show is not going to be as lighthearted as you thought. And that balances really nicely, I think, with the comedy of the kind of crisis of the week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and playing those darker roles is something that I think viewers who know Jeremy Allen White won't be surprised that he can get to that point. Um, he plays Carmi. Uh, folks might know him from Shameless when he played Lip. Uh, and <laughs> I think might really... know him from the decade he played Philip Gallagher. <laughs> folks might yeah. only know him as that because he did it forever. And and I do think from like childhood. <laughs> truly, this this feels like a great role for him because it's in the mm-hmm. same genre in a lot of ways. Literally, it's set in Chicago, and it has that same not super funny dark comedy mentality to it uh troubled people with a, you know various kinds of substance or psychological abuse problems and and so it's in a way it's really in his wheelhouse and in another way it's a nice growth role for him because he it is he's the star of this it is about his struggle and it's about more than just um i don't know shame i, I don't want to critique shameless here but it's about more it's about he gets to go further is the vibe I get where shameless in a very classic showtime mentality kind of spins in circles. 
Yeah, I think that he was a highlight on Shameless yeah. and a fan favorite for a lot of folks. So it's nice to see him having this opportunity to lead a show. And um, he's a good actor. Uh, I think that when you really get to see him having those quieter moments, there are some with Sydney. Um, there are some confrontational moments with Richie, his cousin. You really uh, get to see that he's a complicated, interesting actor. Um I am enjoying his performance. Yeah, I, I really am too. And uh, the quiet moments, which we've mentioned a couple times now, there were two in the second episode that that are really when the show kind of elevated a bit for me. Like I was liking the second episode more than the first episode to begin with. I, I was getting into the groove of it better, and I was really enjoying the second episode elevates Sydney, the new the new girl, uh, to a much higher role and a, a, and and a clear indication that she's going to be a much more integral cast member, which I was excited about. But there are two of these moments where it slowed down, and they were the moments where I went, "Oh, the show is kind of." deep um and the first one is carmy and oliver platt guesting as um somebody who seems to be involved in the mob and that's a real great guest role for oliver platt right there and what we learn in this moment shot in the restaurant but it's the first time the restaurant has been like dead silent so it's like before they've opened for the day there's nobody there yet it's just carmy and oliver platt who i think is named jimmy but i can't not call him I Oliver so. Platt. um <laughs> Uh, sitting in the front of the restaurant with like the logo in the front window uh, behind them, but backwards because we're inside. Uh, and, and it's almost completely silent as they go through this scene where you learn that the, the store owes Jimmy, Oliver Platt, $300,000 because uh, Mikey, uh, Carmi's brother, deceased, was not good with money, which is not a surprise And uh, at this point in the, the storytelling, and that he'd taken a lot of money from Jimmy, and Jimmy admits that it probably wasn't the best idea to give him the money, but that he loved him. Also, he might be a mobster, so I don't know why he wouldn't necessarily give him the money, uh, but that now... What Jimmy would like to do is buy out the restaurant because it's absurd to think that Carmi will be able to write the ship so dramatically that he can pay him back. And Carmi refuses. And that's one of the first moments that sets up that there's this is, you know, it's not surprising to hear that taking over your de dead brother's restaurant is about more than just taking over a restaurant. But this is the moment where it really seals like this is about a lot more than just taking over a restaurant for Carmi. Yeah, he also mentions to his sister, because his sister has encouraged him to sell the place to Jimmy, um, that he's trying, he's like, I'm trying to do something. It's like, okay, t tell us a little more. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a little confused as to what he's trying to do. Because like, if he's making it, if it was this like great sandwich shop, and like, obviously, it seems like he's a very good chef, they taste the sandwiches he's made. And even Richie, like has a moment where he's like, like, Oh, amazing. man, this right. is so good. But is he gonna turn it into like a fancy hipster sandwich shop? now? is yeah. it gonna turn it into like a place where you go? And I, I don't know, I'm, I'm confused as to how it could continue the way it is without becoming expensive. Yeah. Uh, Oh, well, I'm just confused know. as to what his what his goal is, and they've got runway to figure that out still. But I have yeah. the same question of, well, what would success look like? You're here to take it over. You're trying to change it to be what? And what what strikes me as, again, you know, interesting, maybe concerning, but it's too soon to say. Is 
one of the stories in the second episode is Sydney bringing this kind of revitalized business plan to Carmi and saying, listen, you've had me on uh, kind of like part-time, and I want to be full-time, and I want to grow with the business, and I know you can't afford to bring me on full-time, but I looked at our books, and I came up with this like 30-page business plan where we would save so much money that even just a fraction of those savings would pay for my salary, and the business would be able to grow and be more profitable. Uh, and Carmi's reaction is like, this is too many words. <laughs> and like, but then what, what's your plan, dude? What's your plan? And to his credit, by the end of the episode, he has brought her on full time. And there is an indication that he is uh, taking her seriousness, her business plan, at least to heart, whether or not he executes it or whether or not he's read all the words. But that was the same concern I had where it's like, well, if you don't have a business plan and someone walks up to you and says, I have a business plan and your reaction is no business plan, please. Well, what what are you doing then? Just sell it. Yeah. Or but the, and his whole thing is he's like, I'm trying to make this place run efficiently and well. So he should be excited by the business yeah. plan. Like, I thought that was a little bit a confusing plot point, but I did think that it showed a lot about Sydney's character, mm -hmm. um, her ambition, her, her um, attention to detail. She's a little bit nerdy about cooking, which is fun, you know? Um, I found myself really drawn to all of the sort of um, smaller characters on the show. Um, the people who cook in the kitchen. I loved Marcus. Um, I loved Tina. She was really fun. Uh, so I hope that as the series develops, um, I think I think it might get a second season. It seems to be doing pretty well. Yeah, um, no news yet, but I, I, I would yeah. be surprised if they didn't give it a second season because it's getting really good reviews out the gate. Yeah, I would um, hope that we get some more time to invest in their backstories. They mentioned really briefly in uh, a piece of exposition that Marcus used to be a professional baseball player, it sounds like. Um, like, I don't know. I, I want to hear more about them. Yeah, me too. Me too. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful again that they, they seem to be when Sydney's role sizably grew in episode two i got really excited because in the pilot i would have grouped sydney in with all of the other kitchen staff as and there's an interesting kitchen staff there's a lot of potential there but i can't really tell you anything specific about any of them yet and in the second episode they very quickly said no sydney is the the ambitious one sydney is gonna probably uh, have more tension with the rest of the kitchen staff because of her ambition going forward and that got me excited because it, it is uh, I was worried that you'd have this show that has a really interesting, diverse cast of uh, people who feel authentically Chicagoland, and then the stars are the two white dudes, which is also authentically Chicagoland in that that is how all of those businesses run. But that's not what I want to see as my entertainment. I want to see the stories of the people behind the two white dudes running Portillo's. You know what I mean? Yeah, I also, I'm going to take a little issue with the authentically Chicagoland. None of these actors are from Chicago, which seems like a huge missed opportunity. None of the main cast is. They do have some Chicagoans coming in for bit roles. Um, Amy Morton, notably, is the food inspector in the second episode. She's so good. She's, She's fantastic. so good. Um, and I, uh, you know, disclosure, I kind of know her but i would say that she's so good even if i didn't kind of know her because she's just really good and i think there are so so many good chicago actors and i am biased because i've lived there i've worked there i know them but 
really, I think we have some of the best actors in the country. And it seems weird to be bringing in all these New Yorkers who are sort of doing like a Steppenwolf impression, it feels like. And when they try and do the like tough guy talk, I'm shouting at you, blah, blah, blah. Like you could see them about to throw things. I was like, oh, let's leave it to the pros, guys. <laughs> wow. Calm down. You, um, you heard so... it here first. The bear <laughs> is not an authentic representation of Steppenwolf quality theater. <laughs> I'm not saying theater, but I do think they're trying to do like a Gary Sinise thing, aren't they? I, I don't know. There is a it's tone. It's that tough there guy is, mammoth thing. Yeah, there is a tone. In particular, I feel like we see this so much in shows set in Chicago. In the last like 20 years, they're all shameless. The bear. Mm-hmm. They're all an invitation for people to overact how rough and tumble it is. Uh, and as people who've lived in Chicago, it, that no, you're 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 overdoing it, guys. Yeah, take it easy. Enjoy the beef. That's the thing. The people in Chicago, they have very high cholesterol from all this beef. They cannot be <laughs> that stressed out all the time because if they were, no. they'd all be dead. Have a little jardinier. Keep the spice there. So true. So true. But, but I do like it. I do too. <laughs> but but my verdict at the end is, but I like it. And the second I episode like was it. a big step up. I was like, I'm I'm sold. I'm in. And I, I, I you know, it's gonna go dark. But what I'm encouraged by, too, is I, I read a review. We'll include the link in the show notes from uh, Jen Chaney at Vulture. And and I feel like I'm I'm getting the same vibes that she was giving in her review. And she made it through the whole season and in particular called out some of the later season episodes as being really brilliantly executed. That sounds like this tonal balance of the crisis of the week with the antics and the stress and the kind of busy stuff where the first episode had too much of the busy stuff um balances a lot better with the character work and the deeper stuff as the season goes on and that makes sense to me because you don't know the characters in the first episode so you can't really earn those moments uh where in the second episode now i know them a bit i think the second episode did a really smart thing you talked about the two ways you can handle a pilot and the second episode kind of said well, we know in the first episode we decided to just throw you into it. Maybe that was a little much, a little fast. So the second episode, we're going to open with a flashback to his life in New York where he's getting berated by Joel McHale, who's playing the most evil chef you've ever met in the universe at some incredibly fancy restaurant. And that that was a great move in terms of filling in a bit of that, even though you, you logically knew that's where he came from from the first episode. They did take a moment to go, maybe we should go back and show you a little bit. And maybe we should give you a bit of his before life so that you can understand where he's coming from. Yeah, and it's if part of his ambition is to move away from the sort of um, abusiveness of that kitchen and kindle some like kindness among the staff at the new place as they grow together, um, that I could get behind if that's what he's trying to do, you know, like get out of that pattern. Um, I'm not sure that he is. I'm I'm. Still That's a little confused as to what Carmi's doing. But we'll figure it out as the season yeah. progresses, I suppose. Yeah. We'll see. Well, that is, if you uh, watch The Bear, and if you think, man, that's kind of interesting, I'd like to hear what they thought about the rest of the season, what you can do is email us, podcast at streamageddon.com, or leave a comment wherever you uh, listen to our podcasts, and tell us that you want us to do a rewind review, and we will come back and tell you what we thought about the rest of the season. But speaking of rewind reviews... (laughs) 
it's time for us to revisit a show we both love, Barry. And this is a big spoiler alert right now. Just like giant flashing klaxon spoiler alert. We are about to spoil season three of Barry. There you go. If you do not want that spoiled, well, just hit pause right here and come back when you're ready. But Diane, I think we might have some differing opinions about how season three went. I'm excited to get into it. Ooh, okay, fun. Yeah, well, I will say uh, overall, I had issues, but I really loved it. I think like that's a really... really fair thing to say. I think maybe if we both just say that, we can end right here on a, on an agreement. <laughs> we agree. Uh, it, yeah. It, it was a complicated season. I, I have two frames that I've been looking at this through because I, I really love this show. One frame is kind of the meta of, you know, Bill Hader is not just the star. He's the writer. He's increasingly the director. And to me, this is the season where it became really clear that Bill Hader prefers directing Barry than being Barry. Agreed. I think that the issues I had plot-wise this season mostly centered on Barry and that it got difficult for this character to continue. He was obviously in a lot of emotional pain too, but also like a lot of the choices he was making weren't really making sense. And I kept being like, how is he not getting caught? How is he not getting caught until... Surprise! Surprise! He gets he gets caught, um, and I'm I'm glad that they went there. I'm confused as to how they'll go on, but I I yeah. am glad that they will. But him as a director, he's just really technically gifted. Um, that chase sequence uh, in the episode with the beignets, yeah, was that, that entire astounding. episode with the beignets. The the way the beignet scenes were shot. The, the dude who makes them. I, everything about that was just so stylistically deliberate. You know, mm-hmm. we, it was one of those things where we always associate movies with the director's vision. But this is so clearly the director's vision uh, in a TV show, in a really cinematic TV show. Uh, y- yeah, you I know, just love the directing. Yeah, I think we can we can strong agree on that. And I agree, too, that the weakest moments story-wise for me were more around Barry the character than anyone else. I thought uh, everyone in his orbit got to have amazing uh, stories this season. Gene's arc was surprising in a lot of ways, but also, like, extremely satisfying and so much fun to watch Hen- Henry Winkler go through. Henry Winkler is so gifted. This cast is so good. I think that the parts... So I sometimes have plot issues with this show, but because I love the directing and the acting so much and because I'm just kind of more into it for the jokes and tone and overall milieu, I don't care that much about the story being a little messy. The the story is sort of a fantasy anyway. It is Mm -hmm. is an absurd story from the beginning. You know, the hitman who wants to be an actor. Uh, That that alone gives you permission to kind of throw some logic aside and say that the, you know, the plot holes, they can be there if they're not distracting from the the overall goal of the show. And the goal of the show, I think it's it's succeeding on so many levels. The, The... The tone of this show that is both very funny, but also about how, you know, these kind of, um, these people rot from the inside. Sally's Mm -hmm. arc this season, where she finally gets everything she wants, and then she essentially turns into Barry, is the most terrifying character study I've seen on a TV show. I hope Sarah Goldberg gets an Emmy. (laughs) 
no, I totally agree. Sarah Goldberg knocked it out of the park this season. And uh, mm-hmm. with, with, you know, some help, obviously, from Bill Hader's direction. There, there are some of the scenes, like, where she's at the premiere of Joplin, and she kind of gets unhinged in front of this large crowd. The, the way the camera lingers on her, the way that the direction gave her permission to really, like, extend that moment for, you know, there are many moments mm-hmm. in this season where just, you know, a decade ago, television directing 101 would say, that scene is way too long. You cut away from that way sooner than that. And here we have the permission to say, no, linger on it. Like, really stretch this out to an uncomfortable degree because you know what? If you were in that room, it would be uncomfortable right now. Right. And I think that the what happens to her in the final episode was so difficult for me to watch. Um, We know that she has been um, a victim of intimate partner violence before and that like her greatest fear is being strangled by a man. And we see that happening. And the way it was filmed was um, beautiful, but really, really hard to watch. Um, It, it, I would say that the, the final episode of this season is one of the more disturbing episodes of television that I've seen. Yeah. And and that comes after last season, where the final episode was also extremely disturbing, just to remind you all. That was Barry murdering everyone. That's true. Though that was more of horrible things happening to characters we didn't know as well, which I know that's awful, but watching it happen to these characters who you've grown so fond of, like Hank in particular, I just have such a softness for. And what happened to Hank, I have a problem with (laughs) I, yeah. I, I do. I worry I, about where they're going with Hank and Cristobal at the end of that, but we don't know yet. We don't. We don't. There was another scene in the finale where Hank hears the other Chechens um, being uh, mauled by what we think is a panther yeah. that I loved. Yes, I was, <laughs> I'm a horrible person. It was, so I was good. screaming with joy during that scene because it was, <laughs> there's so much going on in that scene. It is both for Hank, terrifying, because he's listening to this. But comedically, Mm -hmm. the dialogue and what's happening is, like, over-the-top funny, with the added element of, well, how do you film a tiger mauling or a panther mauling without the budget to have a panther maul anybody, you know? So they do it all off-camera, through a wall, through sound cues. And again, the direction here really sells it, because it's it both sells the comedy and the terror simultaneously. That scene is so, so good. And very good acting. Very good acting. Oh, yeah. Um, and then from there, we see him break into Cristobal, where Cristobal is being held um, to try and save him. Uh, and From a woman there... I now just have decided is Amy Coney Barrett. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. His wife, Amy yeah. Coney Barrett. His he... wife, Amy mm-hmm. Coney Barrett. That, um, hmm. okay, so Elena has, uh, is doing some sort of uh, electric shock she's, therapy she's to try away. and convert... Yeah. She's trying to convert him um, out of his gayness. Um, And uh, so there is a a TV trope I'm sure you've heard of, of um, burying the gays. Oh, yeah. Where as soon as we see a a happy uh, gay character, um, particularly a gay character happy in their romantic life, um, there is the trope of uh, having them killed. Um, Yes. And I... 
We don't know what's going to happen to Cristobal. He may have survived this encounter. He certainly won't he's survive it completely he's unscathed. He's physically alive. That's so, the, the best we can say. Yeah, it seems that they were trying to create a scenario in which the worst possible thing could happen. They were just being like as creatively awful to him as they could. And I just don't understand that choice. I did I some know. research I... to try to find out, is this something that happens in Bolivia? It's very rare for conversion therapy to be um, put on someone by an adult partner. Um, it's There are LGBTQ rights protected in Bolivia's constitution. I was like, where did they just came up with this just to be cruel? I hate it. I hate I don't it know. so much. I, 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 I appreciate deeply your constitutional research. Uh, I did not go that <laughs> far. I thought what was happening in that scene was exactly what you were describing and they maybe fell into their own trap they they didn't want to bury your gaze they 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 know that trope if they just kill cristobal that is the worst choice in theory and so how do you kill him without killing him how do you find a way to get the emotional impact of burying your gaze without doing it and this was that i think pretty clearly and i i that, that doesn't solve the problem, but it leaves them an opportunity to maybe uh, course correct it a bit in the next season. That they have not, if they just killed Cristobal, they can't unring that bell. And here they've like started to ring the bell, but the bell hasn't fully rung. And maybe if they realize that they kind of stumbled into something they didn't mean to do, they can undo it. Or at least take it somewhere that isn't just torturing the gay character endlessly for torture's sake, which is ultimately yeah. the problem. Yeah, I was like, is it some like Game of Thrones? What is this no, torture no, sequence? No, no, please, no. Um, often with Barry, if there's a moment that I'm like, why are they doing that? The payoff later solves it. Is solves it for me. Yeah. So I'm optimistic, but I did not like. I did not like that. No, you know, otherwise very strong finale yes and i and i will say as you as you unpack this more because i i thought about this scene a lot but you you have brought more light to it uh it reminds me that in the season two finale in the the scene leading up to the scene where barry kills all of the all of the mobsters from all of the gangs the bolivians Mm -hmm. and the chechens and everybody just dies except for Hank and Cristobal. And there's the scene where Hank and Cristobal bring the the families together before everything goes wrong for them. And in that moment, they kind of hug and then like one of their legs goes up. And mm-hmm. and at that point, they'd just been flirting with the Hank and Cristobal are gay uh, storyline. They had not committed to it uh, at least not publicly. Uh, and they hadn't really committed to telling us that Hank was gay. And and they've never really addressed whether Hank was out or whether this is his first relationship. They And honestly, I don't think we need to know that in season three mm-hmm. at all. But all of this reminds me of when that scene happened in the season finale of season two, I had a moment where I went, oh no, you're playing the gay trope card. You're going, wouldn't this moment be funnier if they were kind of gay for each other? And then in the season three premiere, I find out, actually, no, they are in a gay relationship. And that and made the... Yes, and so there, there was this <laughs> amazing, ex- 
extremely delayed payoff for that scene. That scene that I had sat in the back of my head for over two years, where I was like, I don't know. It turns out I, they they were not playing the trope. They were having they were having fun leading us to a way more interesting, authentic choice. And so there is a chance we could look back and feel the same way about. Uh, what's going on with Hank and Cristobal here. We just don't know yet. And at the rate new seasons of Barry come out, we might not know for a long time. That hurts. Yeah. It hurts me inside. It does. I, do, I just, if you're a TV creator out there and you're considering having an extended torture sequence, uh, think think more about it. Now torture one of your straight characters. You can torture the straight characters, preferably straight white men, all you want. We are cool with that. Yeah, I don't know that I want to <laughs> like, watch it, but okay. I didn't say I want to watch it. I was just saying I won't <laughs> complain about it. That's fine. If they tortured Amy Coney Barrett. I'd be anyway. fine with that. I'd be fine <laughs> with that. Okay, that brings me to the one other frame I want to use for talking about the, the end of season three of Barry. So there was the meta frame, and and I love Bill Hader as a writer and creator and director. So in a way, a, a, like we've said, even if Barry is kind of the weak point as a character, I forgive it because I love what they're doing. And if Bill Hader needs to reduce the importance of Barry in a show called Barry in order to make a really interesting show called Barry, as crazy as that sounds, it's kind of working for me. And in particular, what's working for me is that they finally acknowledged we can't keep doing this with Barry forever. We have to burn it down. And we have to admit he's going to get caught. And he does. And he gets caught through a pretty sloppy mistake, too, which I think some people have questions about whether it, it... it kind of strains credulity that Barry did not realize he was surrounded by a SWAT team in that moment. But that is very believable to me. He would get caught in an emotional slip-up. He would not get caught in an elaborate, plotted uh, thing. But he, he's at the end of his rope here. He, he's in a place where he would take his eye off the ball, I think. And so it made sense to me that it would be a small mistake that he should have caught. It made a lot of sense to me based on... Barry's mental state that they've established in the pa- in the f- episodes leading up to it, there, he's not well. He's, no, he's not. Seems completely erratic. Um, he's acting impulsively. Uh, it would have not made sense if he hadn't gotten caught. Yeah. So as I like to think about this frame, this frame I have a name for. I call it uh, going full agrestic. And if you're not familiar with Agrestic, Agrestic is the fictional California suburb where the classic Showtime series Weeds is set. And uh, Weeds takes place in Agrestic for the first three seasons. And the first three seasons are basically about a suburban housewife who becomes a pot dealer and uh, struggles. It's funny. It's a little dark. Then season two gets really dark and it gets much more dramatic. And then season three tries to find the balance between the dark stuff from season two and the funny stuff from season one and begins to realize that they've kind of run out of of runway there. And I don't know when they figured that out on Weeds. I don't know if they went into season three knowing that season three would end with the town of Agrestic literally burning down while Nancy rides away from it. But they did realize that and then they kind of rebooted the show in a way. And while 
I think it took them a while to find their footing again. Uh, that concept of when you run out of runway on your original concept, you got to burn it down if you want to keep going. Otherwise, you're going to flail and it's going to fall apart. And I think there were moments in season three of Weeds where they were flailing a bit. The, the stories started to get cartoonish and uh, unfocused. And then they burned it down and refocused. And I think they went into season three of Barry knowing full on this is the season we have to burn it down because we cannot keep this up status quo forever. And there were some moments in the middle of the season where they were flailing, I think, a little yeah. bit plot-wise, but then it would find itself again. Um, it has that really strong acting, that really strong uh, camera work, that yeah. strong tone to get us back into it. What's interesting but if you to just me look is, at the story... is like Barry's story was flailing the most, and everyone mm-hmm. else's story was actually a lot more clear to me. And the I, I think... My charitable read on this would be they intended for Barry to flail this season, that this was the season about him running out of uh, things to hold on to and things to center himself on, and people who he can use as a bedrock. Um, and so I, I think I think that was a deliberate choice. But if it if it wasn't, it just I think it speaks to the importance of when your initial concept runs out of road, you gotta make a hard turn. You got to try something new. And whether they knew that going into this season or they figured it out while they were crafting the season, uh, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd actually be really curious to know if Bill Hader and Alec Berg started season three uh, in the writer's room knowing that this is where it was going to end or if it took them a while to discover that. For me, the part that was the most confusing and didn't quite add up was Fuchs in season three. There were repeatedly these young women falling in love with him. Um, Is that just because he's like um, a narcissist that he draws people to him? Or is it like an extended joke because it's it's, it's it's so absurd that they would love him? Well, it's not. I don't think that's not the joke. I think the extended joke here is that you could throw like a million beautiful young women at Fuchs's feet who would all be his forever in the most, you know, disgusting, slovenly way. And Fuchs would go, yeah, but I got to deal with this Barry thing. That the joke is that Fuchs is so obsessed with his blood feud with Barry and with controlling Barry that he will he will just ignore riches being put forth in front of him because he's got to go deal with Barry. So I get that, and that works to me if we're talking about riches, but women are people, and that their behavior was uh, didn't make sense. So I, I get what they were trying to do, um, but it, yeah, eh, I, I don't know. I, I see your didn't point. Didn't totally work. I see your point there. I do. I do. Uh, um, but, you know, Stephen Root's so good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, I'm like, yeah, but it's Stephen Root. So even if his story doesn't really make any sense, I'm fine with it because I want to watch Stephen Root. The worst Casting thing would be if they matters. wrote him out. If they wrote him out of the show, I'd be so sad. Mm-hmm. That but would, at a certain that would point, we have to start writing some people out of this show. And that is my big question going into the next season is, do they pull everyone back together or do they let people go their separate directions? And some of that might be in whether they have an end game planned. It, you know, I think uh, light, light, extremely light spoiler alert around Stranger Things season four here. But Stranger Things season four 
uh, is setting up the final season of Stranger Things, which will be season five. And once you finish season four of Stranger Things, it's incredibly clear that they crafted season four and season five overall story together. And so Mm. I do wonder, like, is Barry going to get a two-season renewal, and are we going to get, like, kind of a two-part final chapter of Barry's story? Or is Barry only going to do one more season? Or are they going to be open-ended about it uh, and go the weeds route of however many seasons until people forget we're on TV? I don't know. Uh, But I'm very curious to find out. I would love to figure out what's going to happen with Sally and Kuzno. So even if they get rid of Barry, the character. <laughs> I, there's part of me that would be really into a show called Barry yeah. about a bunch of people who used to know Barry, but Barry's not there anymore. Yeah, I'm into it. I'm into it too. And honestly, if that's the the if that's the burn down the, the story and reboot that they want to kind of try at the beginning of season four, you know, obviously they can bring Barry back anytime. It would be interesting if season four starts with everyone without Barry and how do their lives change without him. Yeah. I'm sorry I said they should torture Amy Coney Barrett. That wasn't very charitable of me. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to let you apologize for that. We will be keeping that in. <laughs> But you know what else we'll be, we'll be keeping in? We'll be keeping in this exciting Rewind Review segment because we just, we love a good Rewind Review, don't we? Mm-hmm. It's fun to see how shows change over a season. Yeah, and so- speaking of shows that change a lot over the season, next episode, we're going to Rewind Review a show that I think changed a lot over the course of its first season. And, uh, you know, light spoiler alert, I liked it. I liked it so much. And if I love that for you. I was going to say, I might even say I loved it. If you would like to love what we liked and might love, you <laughs> should get caught up on I Love That For You on Showtime. And next episode, we will be doing a rewind review of season one of I Love That For You. And you know what? I love that for us. I'm so excited. And you, dear listener, you can be excited for us, too, by sending us a, an email with your questions or feedback, podcast at streamageddon.com, or you can leave us a review, a rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, until next time, Diane, uh, have a very stream-filled week. Just tons of beef and streaming, really. Mmm, sounds delicious. <laughs>